0: Thank you so much, Randy. Thank you, Lori. And good evening, everybody. It is great to see you tonight. Thank you to our tech team working hard back there tonight and our greeters and those uh, that are helping in various ways. We just want to appreciate all of you and uh, thank you for for your part in this. Um, I want to say a couple of things uh, by way of introduction. If you're watching online or if you are watching, if you're here but watching online in the future, I want to remind you that you can access the Teaching Notes online. Uh, starting tonight, uh, on the Facebook page, we are posting the um, Teaching Notes, so if you're at home and you want Teaching Notes to write on, you can uh, go to the Lake City Community Church Facebook page and click on something there, and uh, they'll, they'll download for you, okay? You can print those out and take notes. Uh, each monday after the class um, after mark uploads it to the website and so it's on lc3.com media tab revelation study and at the bottom of that right below the video on the on the website there's a little tab there a button that says resources and if you push that it'll let you uh, download the notes there too so you can send uh, give it to somebody else or if you're not able to come some week you can get the notes on there and uh, print them out too Take notes if you want to while you watch them. No pressure to do that, of course. Just we have people showing up early because they're distributing handouts to, to friends or want them at home. It's like you don't need to do that anymore now that we've posted it on, on Facebook. All right. So a little little uh, review tonight before we dig into Revela- the rest of Revelation one. Um, I want to answer a couple of questions that I was asked this week to start with. So. Again, if you have questions, write them on a three-by-five card or take the yellow Connect card from the chair pocket in front of you and write a question on that and drop it in the little gray basket right outside the door by the sermon notes, okay? But one of the questions was, do we give an accounting for the the things Jesus has forgiven? Okay, so we talked about last week, I referenced a couple of times, we're going to stand before the Lord someday and give an accounting of our life. And so, someone wanted to know uh, are we going to give an accounting for the things Jesus has forgiven? In other words, uh, the way I took that, I hope I'm understanding the question correctly, is, is this What is the judgment seat all about? Okay? Well, it's not about getting into heaven, and, and it's not about being forgiven. All right? I want to make that clear. In fact, uh, one of my favorite authors is Mark Hitchcock, and the book that I often recommend to you on prophecy is The End. I want to read a couple of paragraphs. That he a- answers that question better than I can. <clears throat> so he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. The, the other term for it is the Bema seat. And he says this, that to understand the purpose of this judgment, it is important to know what it is not. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is not to determine whether people will enter heaven or hell or to punish sin. This ultimate issue is decided when a person believes in Jesus Christ as his or her savior from sin. God's word is clear that his children will never be judged for their sins. Our salvation rests wholly on the person and work of Christ in our place. If the purpose of the judgment seat is not to determine if we get into heaven, what is its purpose? The issue at the judgment seat is not salvation, but rewards. Salvation is based wholly on Christ's work for us, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Rewards are based on our works for Christ after we trust him. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is twofold, to review and to reward. So he, he's got a whole chapter about it in there. That's just one excerpt from that. And if you want to find out more, I'd encourage you to pick that up. The other thing you can do is... Uh, A website that I uh, recommend oftentimes to people to look up theological questions is gotquestions.com. Gotquestions, G-O-T, got gotquestions, one word, dot com. All right? So remember, there are two major judgments that the Bible tells us about. The first, well, the first one is going to, sequentially, is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. The second one is called the great white throne judgment. Great white throne judgment is right before the millennium starts, and it's for unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ that I just read you about it, it is for believers, and it's right before the rapture. Excuse me, it's right after the rapture. And one of the primary passages about the judgment seat is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, which says this. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Okay, so that's a reference to the judgment seat. Um, the, another reference to it, I believe, is first John two twenty-eight. And the Apostle John says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So it's possible that when Christ comes back, there will be a disappointment, there will be even a sense of shame because of the way we lived our lives here. So, um, anyway, if you want to learn more about it, I'd, I'd encourage you to read more about it. Uh, it's beyond the scope of, of what we're doing tonight. Okay? Again, two books I recommend. The End by March, Mark Hitchcock. That's on the bottom of your, uh, the back side of your sermon notes if you want to, find that there's another one that deals a lot about eternal rewards. it's not on your notes. it's a book by Erwin Lutzer and it's called "Your Eternal Reward and that goes into great detail if you want to really go into depth whole book about it all right the second question I was asked is what does seventh-day Adventists believe about the end times? What does seventh-day Adventists believe about what we're talking about okay so Uh, I had to look that up. I'm not an expert in in, uh, different churches and what they believe. I got some of this from GotQuestions.com and some of it from other uh, websites. And and I want to quote from GotQuestions. Seventh-day Adventism has its roots in Adventism, a 19th century movement that anticipated the imminent appearance or advent of Jesus Christ. The Adventists were also called Millerites because their group was founded by William Miller, a false prophet who, predi- who predicted Jesus would return in either 1843 or 1844. So they had some trouble when that didn't happen, and, but others picked it up, and uh, that movement grew into what's called the Seventh-day Adventist movement. But historically, Seventh-day Adventists have been a little prone to false prophets and to setting dates for the Advent of Jesus Christ, which we know Christ warned against. But specifically, here's, here's their view of the end times. They're, pretty, they're diverse as a movement, so this is sort of a broad brushstroke. And this comes from a document published online after their 2018 General Conference in Rome, Italy, where they defined, they talked about their eschatological views, and I quote, we affirm They listed a bunch of things. And then it says, the second coming of Christ to resurrect and redeem his people from the earth followed by the millennium in heaven, the final judgment upon sin and sinners with their destruction in the lake of fire, which is the second death and God's recreation of this earth as his people's eternal home. So compared to other Christian views of eschatology, the Seventh-day Adventists have a post-tribulation view. Okay, in other words, they expect conditions on the earth to steadily deteriorate, that's post-millennialism, uh, until the time of trouble, they call it, or the great controversy, they call it, which is similar to the tribulation, um, when they say civil and religious authorities are going to combine forces and unleash great persecution on the church, and especially those who worship on Saturdays, Okay. Um, They say the time of trouble is going to be ended by the glorious appearing of Christ. So they're looking for one, not two uh, returns of Christ. So they reject dispensational theology and and the pre-trib rapture. So that's a little summary. Oh, the other thing that they're different uh, uh, from us in is that they say the millennial reign of Christ is going to be in heaven rather than on earth. Okay? Okay. So again, if you have a question, jot it on a card. I'll try to answer it for you, but I won't be able, probably able to keep up with all of them. I wanted to mention one other other thing. Uh, Amir Sarfati uh, posted a prophecy update today. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, uh, it should be up on his website. His website is on the bottom of the back side there, beholdisrael.org or .com. And uh, he was talking today about is Iran, or has Iran gone nuclear? And uh, heard from several people that it was a really good one. I didn't get to hear it yet. But I uh, always encourage Amir Sarfati and his uh, prophecy updates. All right, let's, let's get to Revelation now. And I want to take just a couple of minutes to review last week's class. So I'm going to ask you some questions just to uh, test you tonight. You don't have to say it out loud, okay? Uh, but who wrote Revelation? It's the first one. All right, the Apostle John. What is Revelation? It's a written record of messages and prophecies and visions received by John, mostly relating to the future. Where was it written? The island of Patmos, right. When was it written? Approximately 96 AD, sometime in the 90s for sure, we think it was about 96. And it was written, why was it written? To reveal what's going to take place, primarily what's going to take place in the future. And then finally, I gave you a key word last week. I said the key word for this study of Revelation is the word hope. Thank you. Good job. It's the word hope. Now, I want to say also a word of review about our interpretive approach or the hermeneutics we're using. It's called a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the end times. So here's a chart. It's on your notes as well. The pre-trib, pre-millennial view is, let's see, come on. There we go. So we're right here in the Church Age, and between the the cross and the Rapture is the Church Age. Pre-Rapture means the Rapture is before the Tribulation. Premillennial means all of this takes place before the millenni- the Second Coming and the Millennial Reign of Christ. So um, we're talking about um, biblical events timeline. And we believe the next event, prophetically speaking, in God's plan that he's laid out for us in Revelation and elsewhere, is the rapture, followed by these seven years of tribulation that will end with the coming of Christ, and then Christ will set up his reign on the earth, not in heaven, okay? All right, let's jump into Revelation 1 now. If you have a Bible, I hope you will open up there. Revelation 1, 9 to 21 is our section for tonight. And we're talking about the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. That's the focus of the second half of Revelation 1, the majesty and glory of our risen King. And here's the point of this section in in a sentence. The glory of the risen Christ demolishes fear and entrenches our hope. His glory is what demolishes our fear and entrenches our hope. We all face challenges in life, we have problems in our lives, and when we do, that's when we especially need a fresh revelation of who Jesus Christ is, because we need to focus on who he is rather than our circumstances here. Another way to put that, and you've probably heard me say this before, is big God, small problems, small God, big problems. Say that with me, would you? Big God, small problems. Small God, big problems. All right. So our plan is to finish Revelation 1 tonight, Lord willing. And it can be logically divided into three parts, and these are on your notes. We're going to start with the circumstances of of John's vision, verses 9 to 11. Then we're going to get into the actual content of the vision. And then we're going to get into the consequences, how it impacted John, the consequences of John's vision. So let's begin with the circumstances of the vision. And by circumstances, I mean, what are the, what's the, the background? What's the context for John receiving this? And he tells us about that beginning at verse 9. So let me read that for you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So that's the circumstances for the vision that follows. Okay? It's the third time in these opening verses that John refers to himself by name. Okay, And I think... Partly what's going on, at least, is that John was astounded that in spite of his utter insignificance, he had the privilege of receiving such a monumental vision. That astounded him. So let's remember a little bit about who John was. He was an apostle, one of the Lord's uh, 12. He was actually part of the inner circle, one of the three, along with John, Peter, and James, good. Okay, those three men spent the most amount of time with our Lord, our Savior, while he was on earth. John wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote the three letters, the epistles that bear his name. John identifies himself in the verses we just read as a brother and a partner in the tribulation and patient endurance of the saints. So he's identifying with those who are receiving this letter, he says, you're my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going through suffering and tribulation together. In verse 9, John says that he was on the island of Patmos when he received this vision. I want to remind you where that is, where Patmos is located. So here's the uh, map of the Mediterranean. This is the Mediterranean. Israel is up on this side. Okay, It's, it's not uh, visible because of the focus in the... the uh, microscopy on, on Turkey, modern day Turkey here. But this is Greece, this is Italy, this is modern day Turkey and Patmos is right here, this island that's 40 miles off the coast of modern day Turkey called Asia or Asia Minor back then. And these islands are actually part of Greece. So it's a Greek island, okay? It's a rel- it's relatively, by the way, um, this part up here is actually called the Aegean Sea. I mentioned earlier the Mediterranean, but this up here is called the Aegean Sea and Patmos is considered in the Aegean Sea. So Patmos is relatively small. It's like 13 square miles. For reference, that's twice the size of McNeil Island off, you know, off Stillicum, right? So not a very big island. The population of Patmos today I read is about 3,000 people. I have no idea what it was in John's day. Okay? But in John's day, it was a Roman penal colony. Okay? Here's a photo taken from the center part of, or taken from the center of the island looking north. Okay? The main town on the island of Patmos is called Scala. It has a natural harbor there that you can see. Uh, It's most likely the harbor that the Apostle John was dropped off in a boat by the Romans when they left him there uh, for captivity. Uh, this photo was taken from a place called the Monastery of St. John, and that's it, up at the uh, top of the island there, uh, in terms of elevation. The monastery was built in 18, or 1088, and it's the largest structure on Patmos. It was built like a castle. You say, that oh, looks like a castle. It, it is. It's a monastery built like a castle to protect it from the pirates that frequented those waters. The walls are 50 feet tall, and it was built over the remains, it was built in 1088 over the remains of a 4th century Christian church. Here's another picture from Patmos to show you how barren it is, generally speaking. It's a volcanic island composed largely of rocky and treeless landscape, thus it was an ideal place for the Romans to use as a prison colony. This is the chapel halfway between the harbor and the um, monastery at the top. This is a chapel called Saint Anne's Chapel. It's also called the Holy Cave of the Apocalypse. And according to tradition, it was in the cave that this chapel is built over that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. Okay? This chapel was built in 1090 and then re- updated, reconstructed in 1703. By the way, if you like uh, deep sea fishing or uh, scuba diving, you may want to go to Patmos for other reasons. Okay? There's a fishing and dive shop there, so anytime I'm looking around islands and stuff like that in the Mediterranean, I'm checking out to see what kind of scuba diving there is. And I found this place called the Blue Fin Center. And uh, Blue Fin is a reference to what? Tuna, all right. So uh, it's a shop uh, at the harbor there in uh, Patmos where you can go deep sea fishing, and apparently the the, uh, tuna are plentiful in the waters off Patmos. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that that's what the Apostle John did while he was there, all right? Um, Patmos was not a a vacation destination, obviously, in his day. It was more like Alcatraz, it was populated by criminals. In fact, There was a marble quarry on Patmos and it was worked by the prisoners who were unlucky enough to be banished there. So John was likely sent there as a criminal since in his day, Christians were still considered, uh, or Christianity was considered an illegal religion. And so that's likely why John refers to himself as a partner in tribulation and patient endurance. Exhausting labor under the watchful eye and whip, most likely, of a Roman guard along with insufficient food and clothing. Think about it. It would have taken its toll on a 90-year-old man. 90 years old when, when he went there. Okay. It was a bleak, barren island. Or in his 90s, I should say. It was a bleak, barren island And under those brutal conditions, John received this, the most extensive revelation of the future ever given to us. Verse 10 tells us that John received this vision while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Most likely, the Lord's Day refers to Sunday. That was the customary way of referring to to Sunday for the early church since Christ was resurrected on a Sunday. And the Holy Spirit apparently took a hold of John and projected him in his spirit into heaven and then later into the future through a vision. We'll get to some of those later. And then having written, or having been given that vision about the future, the angel told John, write this down and send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So I want you to remember that John had been the pastor of one of those churches. John had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Okay? So, but he was also likely very familiar with all seven of the churches because geographically they're relatively close to each other. So John probably was instructed to send the letters to those particular churches because he had a pastoral relationship with them. The next thing that John wrote down is now is the content of the vision. He's just described the circumstances under which he received it, and now he relates the content of the vision itself. And there's a couple of things that strike me about it. The first is that this is the only physical description of Jesus that is given to us in the New Testament. And that should motivate us to pay close attention. I'm going to mention the other thing that strikes me after I read the verses, read the vision itself, okay? So verse 12 is where we start. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. All right, so that's the vision, the vision of Jesus that was given to the Apostle John. And that brings me to the other thing that, that strikes me as I read that. Many portrayals of Jesus by artists or by Hollywood and film, whatever, uh, they tend to portray Christ as sort of weak and infeminate. Have you noticed that? Many people think of Jesus as sort of this uh, deified Mr. Rogers with a beard. <laughs> Our minds, as we think about Christ, we can kind of picture Jesus as a baby born in Bethlehem. We can picture him as a builder working with his father on homes. We can maybe picture him as a teaching rabbi who walked the streets of Jerusalem or as a lover of children, calling the children to himself, or even as a beaten prophet who died on the cross. And of course, all of that is accurate. That's true of Jesus. And yet it's an incomplete description of him. And it's not the picture, the description of Jesus in Revelation. The Jesus in Revelation that we see here is the God of all the ages who sits in judgment. Some people don't actually like that Jesus, right? They only like Jesus who's showing grace and mercy. The problem is if we're not careful, we can be guilty of sort of picking and choosing which attributes of Jesus that we want to embrace. It's not a smorgasbord where we get to choose, right? It's whoever he is and he's portrayed to us in the word of God. We're not given the luxury to pick what he's like. And listen, beloved, John describes Jesus for us and he's anything but weak and effeminate. Again, this is the only physical description of him in the New Testament, so I want to let it really soak over us and inform us about our Lord. We're going to do that by looking carefully at seven aspects of our Lord's glory that are revealed to us in this vision, and they have to do with his constant ministry to the church, his constant ministry to the bride of Christ. Here's number one. Christ indwells his church to lead and empower it. Christ indwells his church to lead and empower it. In verse 10, we just read that his voice is like a trumpet. And you know trumpets are used frequently in the Bible. Okay, Gideon used the trumpet to call the warriors into battle. Joshua used the trumpet to defeat Jericho. In ancient Greece, trumpets were used to rally the army. Even at the temple in Jerusalem, priests would use trumpets to call the worshipers to come to the temple to take part in worship. So why a trumpet? Why not a trombone or a tuba or a flute, right? Well, the trumpet's easy to hear, for one thing. You can hear it a long ways away. And I think a trumpet sort of signifies clarity and urgency. Let's read the verse again. Verse 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. So he heard a voice that sounded to him like a trumpet behind him, and so he turned around. If you think about it, it's interesting. We're told that we're to be waiting for the trumpet call of God, right? Okay, Our blessed hope, is going to be introduced to us with the trumpet of the archangel. The trumpet call of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the rapture, our blessed hope. So again, God uses the trumpet to get our attention, and I think also because it's just easy to hear. All right. Verse 12 says that John turned around and saw seven golden lampstands. And in verse 20, we're going to learn that those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, lampstands, seven of them. Some commentators uh, describe this as a uh, seven-branched menorah. It could be. That, that's what was in the uh, tabernacle and in the temple. Others describe this as seven golden lampstands that were you know, around um, with each one having a traditional oil lamp on it. Okay? We don't know for sure which it was. I tend to think it was probably these seven pillars that were made out of gold with a lamp on top of it. That seems to fit the picture here. And they're golden because gold is the most, or was the most precious metal of all to them. It's a reminder that the church is to God the most beautiful and the most precious entity on earth. So valuable that Jesus was willing to purchase it with his own blood. Listen, beloved, we we are to love the church in the same way, okay? I know the church is far from perfect, I got that, okay? But listen, never be down on the church. Never give up on the church. I know some people have even had painful things done to them by a church. But the church is also the bride of Christ. Listen, right in the middle here of this chapter in the book of Revelation, we see the church, the bride of Christ. And that's what God, the church, is what God is doing in the world today. The church is the hope of the world. And the church is precious to God, and therefore we show our love to Christ when we love his bride, when we love the church. So seven is the number of completeness, and though therefore seven churches symbolize, I think, all churches of all time, okay? including our own church today. The, but these were actual churches in seven real cities, but they symbolize the entire church throughout all history. And right in the middle of the lampstands, Okay, in the middle of the churches, John saw one like the Son of Man, he said. That's Jesus. 82 times in the Gospels, 82 times Jesus called himself the Son of Man. I want to read a couple of verses, a couple of references to that, beginning with the book of Daniel. Remember, there's a very strong tie between Daniel and Revelation. We would do well to be reading Daniel at the same time we're reading Revelation. And remember that Daniel received a vision of the end times, and then he was told to seal it up, to close it up, until the time of the end. And then John comes along, and he's given this vision, and he's told to reveal these things because the time is now near. Okay, So it's important because Revelation 1 is confirming Daniel chapter 7. It confirms what God gave Daniel in his vision hundreds of years previously. So here's Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's a, there it is, a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So notice, it's on the previous slide, but it says he's one like a son of man. Okay? Again, Jesus used that same title for himself 82 times in the Gospels. Here's one example of that from Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? Remember, he's being tried right before his crucifixion. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What did Jesus mean when he answered the high priest like that? He's saying, Daniel 7, man, remember? The one that Daniel prophesied about, the Messiah, that's me. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. In fact, they tore their clothes and they began to yell, blasphemy. And that's what they crucified him on. Charges of blasphemy for that statement. Daniel 7 prophesied it. Revelation 1 reiterates it. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the promised Messiah. And that's who John saw in his vision. And Jesus indwells his church to lead and empower it. That's the first aspect of our Lord's ministry to the church that we're going to see in this vision. Here's number two. Christ is our great high priest, our great high priest who prays for his church. So listen to verse 13, the second aspect of the vision. It says this. He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. What's that about? So the robe and the golden vest are the garments of a priest as described in the Old Testament. So this is a reminder that Jesus serves as our high priest, just like it says in the book of Hebrews. Now the job of a high priest was What? To bring people to God, all right? A priest represents God to us and us back to God. He brings the divine and the human together, so he's given to be a mediator. Okay? That's what Christ is. And I want to mention two specific roles that Jesus plays in his high priestly function. The first is mentioned in Hebrews 7.25. It says, Jesus, our high priest, always lives to make intercession for us. Intercession can also be translated intervention or mediation. Okay? In other words, Jesus is always praying for us. He's interceding for us. Listen, look up here for a minute. Anyone feel tempted this week? Anyone struggle with your attitude this week? Anyone struggle with a temptation to do something you knew you shouldn't do? When the pressure's on, Jesus is right there helping you say no to that temptation he prays for you and he provides the way of escape the second rule of a high priest that i want you to think about when you think about jesus as our high priest is that he supports us when we're tempted in other ways okay hebrews 4 puts it like this for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus, our high priest, supports us with mercy and grace every day. He was tempted in every way like we are today, yet he didn't sin. What an awesome... Awesome truth that is. Listen, he feels what you and I feel. He understands what we're going through. He understands the pull of the world. He understands the pain of betrayal. He knows the feelings of being perplexed. He knows what it feels like to be discouraged. He's been there. He sympathizes with us. And so it's just awesome what... what John is relaying here that he got in this vision that Jesus is our high priest. Okay, he restores us and he brings us into fellowship with God the Father and he supports us with mercy and grace. Who has a friend any better than that, right? Okay, he loves you, he feels for you, he wants to meet all our needs. He's our great high priest. Here's the third aspect of this vision. Christ purifies His church. He purifies His church. So after the clothing that He's just described, John describes our Lord's head and His eyes. It's the first thing He notices, apparently. His clothing represents the role that Jesus has, and this next part sort of declares the character of our Lord, His character. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. Okay. Jesus found himself captivated by the face, by the head of our Savior. His hair was white, he says, like wool. It was as white as snow. I think that's an obvious reference back to Daniel 7.9 where similar language is used to describe Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days. In Daniel, he's describing what God the Father looked like. Here, uh, Jesus is pictured and the parallel descriptions just reinforce the deity of Jesus Christ. The word white here is actually a word that has the connotation of brightness, blazing or brilliance. So it's not just white, white, okay? It symbolizes the glory and the holiness and the, the blazing brilliance of our Savior. So I want you to allow yourself to sort of try to picture Jesus Christ for a minute, okay? After all, someday, you and I are going to stand before him. I'm guessing that there's a good chance that we'll have to cover our eyes, Think about that. Maybe we'll get a new body where we won't have to, but there's a good chance we might even have to cover our eyes because he's so pure and he's holy and his his glory and his holiness are blazing in brilliance. He's never sinned. He's never had an impure thought, never even had mixed motives. He's 100% pure. And John says his eyes were, were like a flame of fire. So this description of our Savior is one where he's not soft, he's not weak in any way. He's immeasurably strong. And his gaze penetrates and purifies. He doesn't just look at us, he looks right into us. You think about our capacity as human beings to communicate with our eyes. I've thought about that more in this era of masks, maybe you have too, okay? But you can communicate a lot of intensity with just your eyes. Maybe you can remember some of the looks your mom or your dad gave you. (laughs) How they could make you cringe or even cry without saying a word maybe, all right? And that's an imperfect human being. Think for a minute about the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says his eyes are always upon us everywhere we go, seeing everything we do, and he even knows the intentions of our heart. Hebrews 4 puts it like this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sounds a little awesome. Listen, Jesus Christ (laughs) is coming back. John says he's coming back soon and he's coming not just as our savior but as the judge of the world and we will give an account to him. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember this verse, we read it earlier, I read it earlier. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now back to John's vision. John's vision. Verse 15 says, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. (laughs) Refined in a fire. So, burnished bronze. Anybody know what bronze is? I had to look this up. I didn't know what bronze is. It's a metal alloy uh, made of two metals. They are copper and and tin. I I heard it out there somewhere. Okay, Copper and tin are combined to make bronze. And the result is it's much harder than iron and more durable than stone. Bronze was the perfect metal for armor and for weapons. But it's also beautiful enough to make the decorative vases and statues and so on. I think here, the picture that, that, we, that John's trying to describe here is these feet of, in the vision that he sees of Jesus. And it's like a red, hot, glowing bronze. Okay. The feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it pictures our Savior moving through his church to exercise cleansing. Cleansing. You see, Jesus is very concerned for the purity of his church. And so he has a plan to remediate sin in his church. And it's called discipline. It's called chastisement. Hebrews 12 speaks of that. Remember the early church? How God dealt with sin in the church? Ananias and Sapphira is one example. Acts chapter 5, they colluded to lie against the Holy Spirit in the early church. And what did God do? He struck them dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, when believers sin against the body and the blood of the Lord in a, at communion, that they run the risk of being becoming sick or some, he said, have even died because of that. It's not exactly the warm, fuzzy picture of Jesus we're used to embracing, right? But it's still very much a part of the reality of who Jesus is, who he's revealed to be. Here's number four, the fourth aspect. Christ speaks authoritatively to his church. He speaks authoritatively. The next aspect of John's vision. That's verse 15. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Back to his voice again, and it's like the roar of many waters. So we know a lot of, about a person by their voice, right? We can kind of tell a little bit about their emotions. Uh, we can even hear someone's voice that we, and not see them, and, and if we are familiar with it, we can know who they are without even seeing their face, right? You can be in the other, other room and hear a voice and know who it is, or the TV's on and you hear... a A commentator on TV, and you recognize who that is, right? We recognize voices. Think about this. John walked with Christ for three years on the earth. He knew the voice of Jesus like no one else among the disciples. He was the beloved. He recognized the voice that he heard behind him. No wonder the emphasis and revelation on the voice of Christ, right? And I think he's like, whoa, that's, that's my Lord. And he turns around to make sure. And then he brings it up here again. It says, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. What do you think of when you hear that? The sound of rushing waters, roaring waters. What, any pictures come to your mind? So Kwame Falls maybe, waterfalls, or... Uh, I read this, someone said it reminds me of Niagara Falls, 167-foot drop. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? A lot of you, I've never been there, all right? Listen, 600,000 gallons of water per second. 20% of all the fresh water in the world is in the Great Lakes, and most of that passes over Niagara Falls. Talk about loud, they say that if you were at the bottom the base of the falls, and you scream at the top of your lungs, you can't even hear yourself. Or maybe it is the ocean. Remember the photos of Patmos, you know? Perhaps the voice of Christ reminded John of the crashing waves against the rocky shores of Patmos during a storm. You were just at the beach, and you were talking about the the waves, right? The voice was like the sound of rushing waters or roaring waters. His voice, Joel three sixteen, says the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. John five twenty eight says, All in the tomb will hear his voice and come forth. John ten, Jesus said, My sheep follow me because they know my voice. Hebrews three fifteen says, Today if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And Hebrews 12 says, someday his voice will shake the earth and the heavens. Listen, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he speaks with authority. The authority and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is also emphasized in the next verse, which is verse 16. It says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Being held in someone's right hand in that day was a picture of authority and power. The right hand was the strong hand, the fighting hand. Okay? Jesus Christ has sovereign control over his church. That's number five. Sovereign control of his church. You say, well, what are the stars referring to here that I just read about? Well, looking down to verse 20, we get additional information. Verse 20 says this. The seven stars, oops, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that phrase right in the middle, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. That word angel is the Greek word angelos, as in Los Angeles, right? Okay. And it can refer to. An angel or a messenger. Generally, the word means messenger. Sometimes, specifically, it means an angelic messenger. So, this could refer to a human messenger or to an angel who has a relationship with the church. Scholars take it both ways. My guess is that this refers to the human leaders, the messengers, the pastors, and the elders that lead these seven churches. I think that's a comforting thought, by the way. But either way, the point is the same. Jesus Christ has sovereign control of his church. Both verse 16 and verse 20 refers to the right hand, and it's symbolic of the power, the strength of God. Jesus holds his church and the leaders of his church in his strong right hand, sovereign in power and authority. That brings us to the sixth aspect of the vision of Christ. Christ protects his church. He protects it. It comes from Revelation 1.16b. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. One of the reasons why the Romans were able to take over the world was that they were on the leading edge of technology in their day. And the high-tech weapon of that day was the two-edged sword. (laughs) It was shorter, it was stronger, and it was sharper because it was sharpened on both sides, both edges of the sword. And that's one of the reasons for Romans' military superiority. Okay. So what does this mean in John's vision? I believe this speaks of Christ's protection against his enemies. Christ protects his church. The Lord of all the church will deal with those who come against his church, whether that's to create disunity or whether that's to harm his church in any way. He's committed to protecting the bride of Christ, his church. And by the way, there have been many attacks against the church in America and Canada and other places of the world as well over the last year and a half or so. This is my opinion now, not out of Revelation, right? So... Some governing authorities in our world have taken advantage of COVID to try, I believe, to minimize the church, even to close down the church and to diminish the influence of the church in our world. And to some degree, there's been some success that they've had. I read that something like 30% of the church quit attending church and have even stopped watching online over the last year and a half. Now... Maybe that's just a cleansing of the church. I don't know. But uh, listen, beloved, I hate to think what Jesus is going to do to those who have gone after his church. Because there's a day of reckoning coming for those who have done that. There's a day of justice ahead. So what's the idea of the sword coming from his mouth? Why is it seen coming out of the mouth? Well, here's what I think that means. I think it's saying this, that Jesus doesn't have to brandish a physical sword because when he speaks, he speaks with authority and when he speaks, judgment falls. He simply speaks and his will takes place. His word has that kind of power and authority. By the way, we see the exact same picture when we get over to Revelation 19, When Jesus returns as the rider, the victorious king on the white horse to defeat the nations, listen to this. Revelation 19 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, there that is again, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. There's the same description. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus Christ is coming back in his second coming with authority and power. But even now, he exercises his power to protect his church. Here's the seventh and final aspect of this vision of Jesus, number seven. Christ reflects his glory, his glory through his church. So John's vision of the glorified Christ culminates in this this amazing statement about the Lord's appearance. Verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Picture the sun, if you can on a dreary day like today, rainy day, all right? Picture the sun shining in full strength because that is a picture that we're given of the glory of Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ is brilliant in his majesty. Remember that John was one of the three apostles who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? John 17. And Jesus is described at the Mount of Transfiguration this way, his face shone like the sun. Remember the Apostle Paul had a vision on the road to Damascus that involved a light from heaven, a light that was brighter than the sun. And that, of course, was the risen Christ. What a glorious picture of our Lord. He is is wonderfully unique. And even though he set aside his majesty and glory when he came to earth the first time, beloved, it it has been fully restored. Listen, Jesus Christ will be the focal point of the universe, the cosmic center of everything. And right now, the glory of the Lord Jesus shines in and through his church reflecting his glory to the world. Well, that brings us now to the consequences. The last part of chapter one is the consequences. We've seen the context of the vision, the content of the vision, now how it impacted the apostle. May I just say in summary that this vision John witnessed dramatically changed him. Initially, his first response was one of fear. It's one of fear. John's response was not unlike 60 years before that at the Mount of Transfiguration. Even there, John was overwhelmed with Christ's glory. Here's what John writes in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, fear not. Listen, when we get to heaven, we're not gonna chatter and yuck it up all right. It's it's not like, "Hey Jesus, how you doing, bud?" I, I don't think that's the picture of what's coming. Some people imagine they're just going to sit down with Jesus and get all their questions answered, you know, talk to the man upstairs. Uh, I don't think so. All right. More likely you and I will fall down before him stunned. Stunned by his majesty, by his glory. I think it will be something like the familiar song, the chorus of that familiar song that goes like this Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Listen. If the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ responded that way, I think likely we will too. Here's one more part of that response. Jesus provides John with this assurance next. Some assurance. Jesus puts his right hand on the beloved. His beloved disciple. I picture him reaching out on touching. Grabbing John by the shoulder and looking right into his eyes with an expression of love. And this is what Jesus said. He said, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus came into our world to die in our place. He solved the problem of sin that we couldn't solve for ourselves. And behold, he is alive forevermore. Beloved, Jesus has the keys of Hades and death. Jesus rose from the dead, and Satan has been running ever since. Listen, de- the devil is not the king of hell, as some portray him, he's the chief prisoner of hell. And Jesus has the keys. That means Jesus is the one who is in control. Yes, Satan has been given some freedom now, but his destiny is assured. You know, sometimes we look around at all the evil and all the sin in the world, and it really bothers us, doesn't it? We were at small group last night and talking about that at the end of the night, and we were, why this and this doesn't make sense. It bothers us, but Jesus has the keys, and He has a plan, and He is in control. Rest in that assurance, beloved. He is in control. And then Jesus gave John an assignment. An assignment. Look up at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. John, I want you to write down what you've seen, this vision in a book, record it and give it to my people. And by the way, this verse is a perfect outline of the book of Revelation. Notice three aspects here, represented by three tenses, the past, the present, and the future. The past is the things that you have seen. That, I think, refers to the vision in chapter one that we just saw. The present is the things that are, That references the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. We'll see that next. And then... The future, referenced by the words, the things that are to take place after this. Okay, metatauta, after this. And that's the visions that are of the things to come. That's chapters 4 to 22. So we'll come back to that. It's a great three-fold outline of the book of Revelation. But what was John's assignment again? To record all of this for believers of every age that we might be informed and encouraged about what's coming. And as I reflect on this breathtaking experience that John had on the island of Patanus, there's three things that sort of I conclude. This is my conclusion. What we ought to do with this. All right. Number one, I will focus my gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ. It's easy to get sidetracked by all sorts of things in life. The news, all sorts of things. All right. That's not good because... Little God, big problems. Big God, little problems. Right? We need to set our gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ. And that has a way of putting everything else into perspective. And the best way I know to do that is to get into God's word every day. Another way to do that is to gather. To gather with God's people to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. By the way, please, as you are in God's word, I encourage you, read through the book of Revelation a little every day, all right? Really let this book saturate you as you are involved in this study. And again, feel free to write down questions and uh, send them to me by email or bring them and put them in in the box out there, all right? All of this in view of focusing our gaze on the glory of Jesus Christ because the better we know him, the more we can trust him. The more we can put our hope in him and trust his plan. Here's the second step. I will respond in submission and obedience to the glory of Christ. Submission and obedience to the glory of Christ. Just as John received this assignment based on what he saw and heard, so we too need to do something with what we hear and learn. As we cast our gaze upon the risen Christ, we'll naturally respond in submission to his plans and in obedience to his will. And so I'd ask tonight, what do you you think Jesus is calling you to do with this? How is he calling you to serve him today? Who is he wanting you to share with, to uh, proclaim your hope in Christ to? What is he calling you to do with this? how to respond. Third, I will make sure I'm ready for Christ's coming. I will make sure I'm ready for Christ's coming. He's our our risen king. And the time of his coming is near, John says. The rapture of the church could happen any day, beloved, and the world then will be plunged into great tribulation. Friend, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, please don't wait any longer. Please don't wait. Friend, you know him as your savior? Can you look back to a time when you turned from your sin and you asked Jesus to forgive you by faith? If you aren't 100% sure, why not do that right now, tonight? Because the day is coming when it will be too late. The skies will break open, the trumpet will sound, and our king will return. And everything is going to be awesome on that day for believers. But listen, you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. So humble yourself and confess your sin to him and receive his gift of forgiveness, please. Let's pray. I'll give you a chance to do that right now. Lord Jesus, you are awesome and you are glorious. We're amazed as we read this description of the vision John had of you. Thank you for revealing yourself to John and through him to us. And Lord, thank you that we have the blessed hope of being with you forever. Thank you for your amazing plan for our future. Help us in the meantime, Lord, help us to fix our gaze upon you and to place all of our hope in you. And friend, if you're here and you haven't taken that initial step of faith to receive his forgiveness, just in your heart of hearts, you can pray and say, Father, I need your forgiveness. I trust Jesus, his death and resurrection for me. By faith, I receive his forgiveness tonight. I confess my sins and I turn to Jesus by faith right now. And we'll give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. Amen. That's what I got for you tonight. So have a good rest of your evening, and I hope to see you next week. Or actually, I hope to see you this weekend. Thanks.